Hey, this is Evan Marquette, dating coach for smart, strong, successful women, and your personal trainer for love. Welcome back to the Love You podcast, where you're going to learn everything you need to know about dating relationships, sex, and men from a man's point of view. Before we begin today, I want to thank you so much for all your kind words, your generous comments, and your positive reviews of the Love You podcast on iTunes. Uh, a bunch of you went to my coaching page and filled out applications as well. I'm eager to get on the phone with you and figure out how to get you the love you deserve. Uh, all in all, it means a lot to me that you took the time to share your thoughts and tell other people about this show. And it's great fuel for me to keep on booking the best guests that I can, which brings me to today's interview with Dr. Ali Benazir. Uh, Ali has been a friend of mine for over a decade. And before I read you his formal bio, I wanted to share a couple of anecdotes about him. First, Ali is one of the brightest people I know, so much that I think he has a restless and wandering spirit. He has such a fertile mind that processes so much information, I think it's hard for him to focus on just one subject the way I have, which is why Ali is not just a dating coach, but considers himself what he says is more of a happiness engineer. Next, because he is a happiness engineer, Ali gets the value of doing the little things. And every year, he is the only person besides my mom who is guaranteed of calling me on the phone to acknowledge my birthday. That is the kind of guy he is. And that's why I'm lucky to have him as a friend and have him on the show, primarily to discuss his book, The Tao of Dating, a piece which I described as a, quote, must-read manifesto for smart, strong, successful women everywhere. Formal bio, Dr. Ali Benazir is an author, speaker, and clinical hypnotherapist happiness engineer. He's the author of four books, including The Tao of Dating, The Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Irresistible, the highest rated dating book on Amazon for four years. And most recently, Should I Go to Med School? An Irre Irreverent Guide to Pros and Cons of a Career in Medicine. He holds an honors degree from Harvard, an MD from UC San Diego School of Medicine, and a master's in philosophy from Cambridge University. Based in San Francisco, he trains executive speakers with KMP Communications and has given three TEDx talks by invitation. Uh, I have a lot of catching up to do, evidently. Welcome to the Love You podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. I'm not quite sure who you're talking about, but he sounds he sounds interesting. He, he sounds very impressive. Um, I wonder who wrote his bio. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how, how are you? How is 2018 finding you? Uh, too early to tell, but so far so good. You know, uh, I think that people sometimes focus on certain external qualities of their life uh, that are way beyond their own sphere of influence and decide to make that influence their lives. But, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, actually, their lives are pretty good. So it's a sunny day in, in Los Angeles right now, actually. I just went for a run. And the fact that all these things are possible and, you know, we're living in peace and we have food, I think it's pretty darn good. Excellent. How did you become the guy who wrote The Tao of Dating? Like, what... What led you to become either a dating and relationship expert or feel like you had something unique to say? Because it is, it's, it's a big metaphor uh, applying, uh, you know, Eastern, <laughs> Eastern religion, uh, religious principles to dating, you know, following the middle path, which is, is genius. How did you, where did that come from? Well, uh, that's a long story, which I will shorten for the benefit of, of your audience. And uh, I was going to write a book of some sorts. And uh, what was going on for a while was uh, when I was an advisor at Harvard, I'd see these undergrads and such great kids and they have their act together and they're academically, su academically successful. They're good looking and they're charming and they couldn't 
get a date to save their lives. And I'm like, well, this is interesting because they live around single people. Uh, they have meals with them three times a day. They go to classes with them. And yet, like getting that one date per semester for the spring and fall formal was such an ordeal. And then I realized, ooh, I was one of those people. So I thought, you know, um, it seems like this is an area in which people don't receive instruction. And, you know, even, even reasonably smart people have not figured out on their own. So I decided it would be a good idea to write this book. But what really got me to finish the book uh, was to see some of these uh, classmates of mine. Uh, like, you know, one time I went to New York City and I visited these two friends and I found out that, you know, they were both divorced and one of them was dating somebody new and she was a successful artist. She was supporting um, the boyfriend who was a less successful artist. He, he was living with her. And for the 18 months that he was living with her, he was also beating her up and yet she stayed with him. So this just kind of shocked me and turned my world upside down thinking, how is this even possible? And at that moment, I realized that writing this book wouldn't just be an exercise in writing the book on dating. This would be nice and helpful, but it was kind of imperative. And if even just one person could snap out of it and get out of a predicament like that friend of mine, then the exercise would have been worthwhile. So I started with the book for men. So I wrote that for kind of my, my students, my advisees. Uh, and then I wrote this one for my, for my female Harvard classmates. That's kind of the audience I had in mind, but really for all smart, successful, uh, educated women out there who may have been with the wrong guy, may have not been able to find the right guy, you know, gone through some turmoil and really haven't achieved that, that place in their lives of, of deep fulfillment when it comes to the relationship, which by the way, is probably the most important thing in terms of contributing to your long-term happiness, uh, health and well-being. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a recurring theme uh, here on this podcast as I interview people. I recently interviewed uh, Jonah Lehrer. You know Jonah Lehrer, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 a little book on love. Uh, yes. And, 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 I, and I, I thought it was uh, for a science-based book. It was such a heartfelt uh, book. You could really, you know, he kind of bled on the page in that one. And mm. he, too, um, cites how, how determinate your life's happiness is on the person that you choose to build it with. And uh, it's very easy to, to avoid Right. It's very easy to, to say, you know what, I've had bad experiences with dating. I'm getting older. It's getting worse. Tinder is coarsening the conversation. Everybody wants instant gratification and sex. Uh, men are pigs and and completely opt out of it. I just don't think it's the optimal path. I think it's a path to quit. I just uh, I feel so strongly about about believing in the possibility that there's good stuff and there's good men. Um, how do you deal with women who are on the brink of giving up on relationships. Well, I hear them when they talk about Tinder coursing the relationships and, uh, and you know, the internet basically being one gigantic uh, pickup bar, uh, you know, instead of being a hundred people, it's like a million people there. And, and that can also be somewhat disheartening just in terms of the cheapening of human relations. And, and yeah, I hear them in terms of uh, the incivility out there and, uh, and yet it's kind of like breathing. It's really not optional. So this is the thing that allows you to flourish. This is the thing that allows you to become uh, the best possible version of you. I think in, in the end, the purpose of relationship is to help us grow and give our gift to the world. And so, uh, what ideally you want to be in the kind of relationship that enables that. And, 
And so, you know, I mean, I just said that it's not optional, but at the same time, you do have the luxury of time. I mean, people think life is short, but life can also be long. And instead of thinking in terms of immediate gratification, my whole approach is, look, where are you right now? And if in one year, if you did certain things, you could be in a place far, far better than you are right now, would you be willing to put in the effort of a year to get there? Because, you know, you, let's say you're 30, 32, you know, 25, 55, whatever it is right now, someday you're going to be a year older anyway. Would you like the rest of your life from that year onwards to be so much better than it is right now? Or would you rather settle for these mediocre short-term solutions that keep on leaving you unsatisfied indefinitely? So it's, it's a little bit like fitness and fitness, you know, you and I can teach some principles to people and help them improve their plight a little bit immediately, right? But it's like a, a session of personal training. That does not necessarily make you fit. What makes you fit is applying these principles and thereby allowing you to kind of reverberate through your entire life. And then as a result, you become a much more capable person and also a person who's much more capable of receiving happiness and, and believing that you deserve it and not settling for the kind of people uh, who make you miserable. There's a there's a line from the Tao Te Ching that I like, which says, you know, um, if you let yourself keep on being disappointed, then your soul kind of ages, your soul gets old and, and you lose your, your uh, joie de vivre and your, and your enthusiasm. And it's so important to keep yourself out of those situations that would create that kind of, uh, that kind of perpetual disappointment. And so, for example, I tell people, look, you know, you want to meet people through other people, through trusted friends and allies. You want personal introductions. You want to meet people through uh, gatherings where you all have something in common because those people are much less likely to do something strange and antisocial than some complete random plucked out of the ether, which sometimes happens if you're, say, on Tinder. Uh, so it's, again, you know, the metaphor of fitness, the metaphor of, of food. What are you putting into your system and uh, what comes the results you get can only be good as what you put in. So when uh, that that leads me to when you're talking about the the, the motivation behind writing the book, you talk about uh, practical spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, how that's a it's an it's an interesting term because you know uh, you know me well enough. I'm, I I don't consider myself a spiritual person at all. Other people have told me that I am mm -hmm. um, because of how I live my life, not because of what I believe. What do you mean by practical spirituality? It's a great question. Uh, and spirituality can mean any number of things uh, for any number of people. I think each person is going to have their own individual definition. For me, it's all about how do you treat others? How well do you treat others? And that's basically spirituality. And any kind of technology that gets you to a point where you're treating others and yourself better than you were before, well, that's kind of spiritual technology. So that makes it a lot simpler. It takes it out of the realm of the esoteric, takes away all the Sanskrit and the, and the Chinese terms and gets you to a point of, oh, this is just another way to be a fit person. You know, so fitness, again, that metaphor. And so practical spirituality is like meditating, right? So meditating is really simple. What it does is uh, over time when you exercise, you become more fit, you become less flabby, you're able to go upstairs better, you're able to run races, you're about, you're, you have more energy, you're able to be a better instrument for the world. When you meditate, it calms your mind down. You Thoughts come in and you don't take the personal. You don't think, oh, I am this thing that somebody said. You know, I, somebody says, you're a frog. You don't think, oh no, I'm a frog. You're like, oh, 
that's interesting. Why that person say that? What must be going on with that person as opposed to taking it personally? Uh, you become more compassionate. You're able to kind of see what people's behaviors are and what's behind it as opposed to reacting to it. And all these things are they're just these opportunities for self-expansion and reinvention. And so another uh, practical spirituality trick that I really like comes from Buddhism. It's called a uh, it's called the idea of no self uh, or anatta in the original terminology. And the idea is that, look, as far as anybody can tell, whether it's religions or meditators or scientists, nobody has been able to find a core self, some part of you that is you. And you know, that's just the self thing. Uh, you know, you can chop up a human and you look at all the different pieces and no one piece is going to contain the self, right? And no part of the mind the self, the idea of self is a construct. So, okay, that's interesting. You still, you know, poke yourself and it hurts. What's that all about? And I encourage people to play with this construct of no self, because if you, if there is no self, if there's no real self, there's no part of you that has this constant identity of you, then, well, what if somebody insults you, which there's no self to be insulted, right? Um, what if somebody rejects you? What if somebody doesn't call you back, right? All of these things just become like water rolling off a duck's back. It's just like, uh, okay, I guess that really wasn't that big a deal. As opposed to thinking, oh no, you know, he hasn't texted me back in 45 minutes. I must be a terrible, unlovable person, right? So uh, these concepts right now, if you've never heard of them before, it may seem really out there and weird, but if you start practicing them, if you start thinking, hey, why don't we just take this no self frame and see what happens, then it becomes tremendously empowering because suddenly a lot of the things that used to bother you before don't or just can't anymore because you're in this other realm entirely. Uh, so uh, yo yoga is very similar just because it really puts you in your body. And so the body is real. And uh, as Westerners, so many people live kind of above the neckline and not in their body. And, and there's so much wisdom in the body and also just anchoring in the body and, and feeling things and being able to process whatever feeling you're having as a thing it is, as opposed to shoving it aside and saying, oh, no, no, that feeling I don't like. So all these things, all these little spiritual technologies, they're just super practical and super useful. They make you a happier, healthier person who's able to see reality more as it is and just not be bothered by things as much. So how does this, let's bring this back to, to your book, The Tao of Dating. Mm -hmm. What are the five core principles? Um, it feels like a sort of a natural segue because you're, 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 you're sort of coming from the top down. We're not talking about, you know, uh, how to write a great online dating profile or how mm -hmm. to twirl your hair on a first date. What are the five organizing principles behind your book? Twirling hair on first date, super important. Okay. But let's get to the big stuff. All right, well, that's yes. number six. <laughs> number, so I, I think the one that's most important is wealth consciousness. Because when it comes to dating, some so many people come at it from a point of view of poverty consciousness, of I am not enough and there isn't enough out there for me. And the numbers say otherwise. There's 7 billion or so people in the world. Half are going to be of the opposite sex or whichever sex that you prefer. And... Uh, that's a lot of people. And even if just 1% of 1% of those people are single enough and your type enough and around you enough, that's still millions of people. And how many days can you handle in a weekend? I don't know. Uh, but I'm thinking hundreds of thousands, millions, that's enough to go around. And some people may say, well, you know, I'm a little bit older. Still, there's people. I mean, you know, I always say if you follow the principles 
that I lay out for you in my books and my teachings, then you will have more people to deal with and more, you know, companions to deal with than you can ever handle. And that number is one. So, you know, and that's one is pretty much the ideal number for this kind of thing. And all you need is that one. So there is abundance, there is wealth. So the second one is enlightenment. Okay, before before you, you you move on, I just want to acknowledge uh, the importance of what you just said, um, mm -hmm. abundance versus scarcity. Uh, I think wealth kind of always makes people think of money, but mm. I think everybody gets the concept of abundance. Men are, are everywhere. Uh, there's there's no guy who's the last man on earth, and if he doesn't like you, it's all over, and you should just pack it in. There's uh, like it's like you miss a bus. There's always going to be another bus that comes along in 15 minutes, and so right, I, and it's yeah. it's possible that they're all gay or taken, but even if you're wrong by one person, then you're good. So. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, there's, there's a lot of guys out there. Um, and if you follow the stuff that, you know, Evan's teaching you and I'm teaching you, then you're basically making it such that you have a monopoly on men and they will be coming after you because so many other people are not doing these things. And you, you know, if you're the one making guys feel like a million bucks, then who else is doing that? Right. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that. Um, so the second principle that I, that I found super useful is enlightened self-interest and, uh, the idea is that what's the right thing to do in terms of benefit for everybody around you and for yourself. And what I found is that, uh, thinking in the long term, the thing that will benefit you in the long term is the best course of action. And the example I like to use is bad boys. So the bad boys, they're kind of like cheesecake, right? So you go and you're like, Oh my God, cheesecake's so tasty. Mm -mm -mm. But if you eat cheesecake every day, you're probably going to gain 20 pounds in a year. And that's not good. So similarly, bad boys in the moment, wow, it sounds really thrilling, really a great idea. But if your goal is to have long-term stable relationships, say marriage, say kids, say family, then the bad boy is going to be just like that fattening, uh, unhealthy dessert. Um, so inline self-interest means thinking uh, in terms of the long now, the best thing for you in the long run. Um, the third concept is yin-yang polarity. So this comes out of Taoist thinking, and yin-yang is just a you know, fancy way of saying masculine feminine polarity and the idea that there is masculine energy and there is feminine energy and they are complementary. They're not, they're similar, but they're not exactly the same, but they complement each other. And it's a little bit like a dance. And in a dance, you have one person leading, one person following, one person having yin, yin energy, one person having yang energy. And it's good to know who has the yin, who has the yang and where you want to be in that interaction. It's not about taking on one thing exclusively all the time, but rather being cognizant and aware of what's happening with that interaction. And when there is polarity between yin and yang, you get juiciness. It's like you've got positive and negative in an electrical circuit and cathode and anode. That's how you get the flow of electricity. That's how nature works. You get north pole, south pole. That's how you get the flow of magnetic lines of force. You get high, you got low. That's how you get water coming down and activating a turbine and cranking out kilowatts, megawatts of power. So similarly, you want juiciness and power in your own relationship. Fourth principle is getting out of your own way, which involves two things. One is uh, just inaction, avoiding inaction. So doing the things you need to do and also avoiding self-sabotage. So not doing the things that sabotage you, like say spending too much time on Tinder or going out with bad boys. And finally, the idea of be, do, have, made, which is the packaging of the entire Tao dating course and book and everything, uh, which is 
you want to start with identity. Like people think that, oh, you know, if I have a boyfriend, then I can do the things that somebody with a boyfriend has, does, and then I can be happy. And what actually works a lot better is to be the person you want to be, be that end product of who you want to be, which is happy. There is no barrier between you and happiness right now. You can choose to be happy regardless of circumstance. That's kind of this gift that uh, the world has given us in terms of our brain, which is able to think independently of circumstance. So you want to be that happy person. You want to be that radiant person. You want to be that generous person. And then from that will flow the behaviors that a happy, generous person does. You will pay more attention to people. You will be more complimentary. You will be kind. You will be attentive. You will make the guys feel like a million bucks. And then guess what? You're going to have around you all those people who just love being around a day-glow woman because there you are being generous. Who doesn't want to be around generous people, kind people, radiant people? So uh, start from the end point. The end point is happiness and radiance. And that is something that you have at your disposal. And from that will flow all the behaviors that will attract all kinds of people to you such that um, all your relationship wishes will come true. Um. Wow, that was big. <laughs> um, so I, 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 it's hard to build on that one. So let's take something that you just mentioned in one of your five principles, the concept mm. of uh, yin and yang. Um, would we say that it is virtually synonymous with masculine feminine energy, which is terminology that I use? Or is, it, is, there, is there a shade different that, that I'm not grasping? Uh, it's pretty much the same. Uh, but... You got that symbol of the yin yang. You got the white with the black dot. You got the black with the white dot. That's the yin yang symbol, the taijitsu. And uh, in Western, we talk about in the Western um, philosophy of psychology, we talk about masculine, feminine. Uh, there's also the term instrumental versus receptive. So there's all these different ways of talking about, it, but it's basically the same stuff. And was there a specific question there? Well, um, it's. It's hard for men. I, I like going at it from the, 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 the back backwards, and, and uh, it's sometimes easier to see things in men than to, for women to see things in themselves. It's important that men have feminine energy to be good relationship partners. Absolutely. Um, it's important that women have feminine energy to be good relationship partners. But mm -hmm. the things that make us um, uh, selfless, patient, easygoing, supportive within a relationship are not always the skills that get us ahead in the, the real working world. And so I think women are whipsawed between having to be uh, masculine in every aspect of their life, type A, where they have to take mm. control of their own destiny. And for them to, to lean back and, and be more passive, um, goes against their spirit of doing the things that make them successful. Men don't have that conundrum. Uh, being type yes. A usually works for men in all circumstances. Yeah. How do women sort of identify where they are on this spectrum? And sort of what are the, what are the pros and cons of each of, of yin and yang? Well, you've been doing this so long that you just phrased that so eloquently and so diplomatically, because this is one of the most challenging aspects of, uh, the whole dating world and uh, the dynamics to convey without sounding like, oh, ladies, you should be more like 1950s housewives, because that's totally not what we're talking about here. And what you said is correct. So guys, they can just be guys. And yet 
the workplace requires a lot of masculine energy. Masculine energy is about doing. It's about directing. It's about uh, telling people what to do. And women are supremely capable of doing that thing. I mean, let's think the leader of the free world is now Angela Merkel. So that's a very capable woman, and she's using masculine energy in a very powerful way. And if you look at that yin-yang symbol, there's a little dot of the opposite color. So the, the white has the black dot, the black has the white dot, which means that we use both. It's a little bit of each that we use uh, in being who we are. Nobody's pure masculine, nobody's pure feminine. Um, so women are perfectly capable of using that masculine power and getting stuff done. At the same time, uh, in their relationship, if they want a guy who is masculine, then uh, they, the woman either want polarity or they don't want polarity. And I, I, I presume that they want that energy of juiciness, of that energy flowing in between their part, between themselves and their partner. And for that, you want polarity. So if he's going to be masculine, then the woman would want to be feminine, and that's how you get the polarity going. And the weird thing is because eight hours a day, women are out there doing instrumental things, doing things that involve directing people and telling people what to do. They're marinating in this masculine energy. So they need to like practice being feminine, which I think is completely and utterly bizarre because they're born with feminine energy, right? So, and yet this seems to be where we are right now. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, frankly, I'm a guy, so I'm not really supremely qualified to talk about this kind of thing, but there are rituals that you can do to transition from one place to another. And I think a useful metaphor for this is road rage, right? So I think of masculine energy as kind of basically road rage. You get in a car and studies have shown everybody turns into a jerk in their car because you're in the steel cage, you're not talking to other people, you're looking at people's, you're looking at the back of people's heads, you're trying to get somewhere. And so you're basically your worst self when you're in, a, in your car, right? So what if you brought that person when you got out of the car into the party that you went to? What if you brought that person who's your worst self into uh, your workplace? That would not be good, right? So what do you do? You kind of slow down, you put a smile on your face, you do a little mini transition ritual, and then you go in there and you become your best self, right? So as a woman who would want to bring on more feminine energy in your life, what's something you can do? you can potentially come home and maybe change into an outfit that is different from what you were wearing before, maybe more feminine, something a little softer, something a little, more flowy, a little less business-like. Maybe you want to make some kind of conscious change between that environment and uh, the, the one with, with your relationship, with the person you're going to be, be going on a date with. Uh, just being cognizant of that makes a big difference in terms of where you want to put yourself in the masculine feminine polarity. And there's a lot of relationships in which the man is the feminine pole and the woman is a masculine pole. And that works as long as you both know that that's what's happening. And, uh, you know, there are parts, I remember there's a Torval and Dean routine ice skating where Jane Torval lifts up, lifts up Christopher Dean. And that was really cool. And people like that. And I think they got a super high score because of it. And if that's your dynamic and you want to do that, totally cool. Just know which pole each person is occupying because on the dance floor if two people start to try to lead it doesn't work that well if two people start to try to follow it doesn't work that well but if you if you know one person's leading and one person's following each of the each of whom who has a lot of skill at doing that then both people have a lot more fun i have so many questions um so many so many comments about that because mm -hmm. I, I 
I, I, I'm on board with everything that you said. It's not even certainly mm-hmm. not even a matter of disagreeing with it mm-hmm. as much as looking at it from different angles, because yeah. if I'm, you know, I'm one of our clients and I'm listening to this right now. Um, I know a few things, right? I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a smart, strong, successful woman. It means uh, I spend a lot of time in my masculine energy. All I want is a 50, 50 relationship. You've heard that before. I just, I just want mm-hmm. an equal relationship. I want it to be 50, mm-hmm. 50. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm attracted to more masculine men, men who are smarter, more educated, funnier, more charismatic, more successful. Um, why can't I have that? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it becomes this sort of false binary trade-off that either a woman thinks she has to become a Stepford wife to, to, be, to be in her feminine energy, uh, or she has to date a guy who has no personality, no ambition, no attraction. Like that's the false binary that gets created when you say being a type A woman doesn't always get you a type A man. Mm. Does that make any sense? Interesting. Well, I, what can happen when I'm talking about this kind of thing is it can get really abstract. So I want to bring this down to the realm of practicality. What does this actually look like? What, is it, what does it mean to use feminine energy in your relationships, in your dating, such that it works? Because if this stuff doesn't work, then we're just kind of bloviating and that's fun for us, not useful for the audience. So uh, I kind of think of a three-level system of attraction. So you want, ideally, to have a partner that you're attracted to on a level of head, heart, and groin. Uh, So that's how we make it poetic. We say groin. Um, If you have a better word for it, I'm all yours, by the way. But you you have these chakras, you have seven chakras, and let's think about the head chakra, the heart chakra, and that uh, root chakra down there. The head chakra basically means that you want to be able to speak to this person, have meaningful intellectual exchanges, have conversations that are enriching and fun. Heart chakra means that you want to be able to love this person. You want to have this deep, emotional, affectionate connection with the person. And and the groin chakra means you want to have sexual desire for this person. You want this person to turn you on. You want to be attracted to this person at a very visceral level. And, and that groin chakra, that's kind of the, the root of the whole relationship. That's the foundation where it all comes from. So the, the feminine way of activating each one of these three, the first one, so the head, it's instead of talking and expressing yourself, that's the masculine function, the feminine function is listening. So if you become a super duper good listener, that is tremendously attractive because everybody in this world is cutting everybody else off, never letting somebody finish a sentence, never letting thought be uh, finished. And so when you draw out a man and you say, hey, tell me more about your baseball card collection, right? He's like, oh my God, she's interested in my baseball card collection, right? And with genuine interest, not just making it up as some kind of ploy, but rather, where does this guy, where is this guy coming from? What is he all about? And listening, that is super powerful. And paradoxically, when you do that, you actually kind of take on the masculine role because you're directing him. If you are a good interview, if you look at good interviewers, like say Barbara Walters, right? They own the interaction. They own the other person. It sounds like the other person's talking a lot, but really you are having this power. And it's an interesting feature that, you know, the opposite of anything, the extreme opposite of something becomes it's, let me rephrase that. The extreme manifestation of any trait becomes its own opposite. So if you become really, really good at this feminine energy of receptivity, you actually are leading. So the heart thing, what's the heart? If you want to um, express 
feminine energy through the heart. What is that? That's devotion. That's like saying, hey, I am here to serve. Not be subservient, but to serve. It's like, how can I elevate you? How can I make you a better person? And that is kind of like mentorship, if you think about it, which is perceived as a masculine thing, right? And then, and then finally, what is the expression of the feminine in uh, the, in, if you were to bring that into the, the sexual aspect and the attraction aspect, and that is receptivity to sensation, receptivity to pleasure, and just taking it all in and being receptive. And, you know, a guy, if he, he were honest, would say to you that one of the most rewarding aspects of sex is seeing his partner enjoy herself, right? So when you luxuriate in the sensuality of the world and and also uh, your intimacy with your partner, that is a tremendous turn on. So those are the practical ways in which you are uh, activating your femininity. And that's just about taking on your natural talent and the power that you already have. So there's no loss there. You're not becoming a Stepford wife. It's actually making you uh, much more powerful. And if you do these things, you will own the guy. <laughs> I don't think of that as as being powerless or even 50-50. It'll be like, you're 90 and he's 10, but don't tell anyone. Yeah, no, I think it's it's one of the... It's one of the things that gets lost in internet culture and uh, what passes for dialogue, posting on Facebook and uh, reading blog posts and the like, is that context and nuance sometimes gets lost. I just thought of this this morning because uh, uh, I read the thing by Catherine Deneuve. Did you read that about the Me Too? No. Catherine Deneuve. Uh, I didn't know she was alive, but great. She's alive. She's in France. And she uh, wrote she wrote a piece uh, co-signed by 100 French women um, uh, against Me Too. Um, uh, essentially not against, you know, uh, it's not pro-sexual harassment, but rather that the movement has gone, gone too far. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's shoot first, ask questions later. Uh, there's place for awkward seduction and, um, you know, all, all the kind of things that the, the, the nuanced position on, on me too. And immediately, you know, she's being branded as a traitor to all women for taking that position. Um, there, there is a lot of power in in being a woman who uh, men respect for reasons other than your intellectual prowess, which does not mean your intellectual prowess is valueless. But um, if a man has his own intellectual prowess and values his own um, uh, business acumen uh, or academic credentials and it is not the thing that he's necessarily seeking first. He's seeking um, something different than what he gets from himself, from his work, from his guy friends. He's seeking some form of support, nurturing, uh, understanding, attraction, things that he that is not ready, readily available to him by any any other means but his girlfriend or wife. And so it's not that he doesn't value those other things. It's that he, he values these feminine traits even more. And to say that those traits are valueless diminishes what men want. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's super powerful. And one way that I phrase it is that, look, you want to date a successful guy, let's say a CEO, let's say, you know, a doctor, a lawyer or something, right? Does he want to date himself? Right? Because a lot of these women who are 
my readers who write to me, they are CEOs, they are doctors, sure. they are lawyers, right? And so, you know, if you are coming at him with the same energy as he, then, you know, that's more of a clash as opposed to a complementarity. And what they're, what guys are looking for in a relationship is that femininity, is that receptivity. And, and they are putty when they see it. They, they just completely become subservient to it. I was just reading this, um, this biography of Leonardo da Vinci and one of his patrons, uh, Sforza, uh, he was betrothed to you know, the daughter of some neighboring duke. It's going to be a political alliance. He'd been betrothed for 10 years. And then he meets this 15-year-old girl, and he's completely crazy for her. And he gives all of it up, and he brings her in, and he's like, no, I don't want the rest of them. So, you know, that that is the kind of hold that uh, feminine power can have on a guy. Um, so it's worth trying. um i i I just i think i think it's tough because you as a male dating coach for women you you very much want to validate what women want Mm -hmm. um uh because it's not it's not wrong uh the the question is what does one need to get give up to get it what are the trade-offs in life and a man who says i want you know i want to date a top chef supermodel Rhodes scholar um, is probably going to find himself disappointed. A, because mm-hmm. there's not too many top chef supermodel road scholars. B, because if there is one, she's probably not going to be interested in him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so everybody has to make some some sort of trade-off and adjustment based on not just what you're attracted to, but also what works. And I think that's the hard part. What we're attracted to doesn't always work for us as a partner. Oh, boy. Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, yeah, and... That's why I emphasize fulfillment-centered dating because the thing that I figured out over the course of years researching this happiness engineering project is that your brain is not designed to necessarily make you happy. Your brain is designed to help you survive and reproduce. That's pretty much it. And that's why it designs us to fall in love because the whole falling in love thing, which may or may not result in marriage, I mean, even that's got at best a 50% success rate apparently in this country. So uh, it your brain doesn't care. I mean, evolution, everything, it doesn't care if you're happy in your union. It just cares that you get, you fall hard enough in love such that you end up reproducing with this person. And for 18 to 24 months, you stick around just so the kid can start walking. And then the effects wear off and you're no longer in love. And you're like, holy cow, who is this person that I'm with? Right? So that's why I really want to emphasize the whole idea of fulfillment centered dating as in what is it that actually makes you happy? And and what's your mission on this earth anyway? What are you here to do? What is your gift to give? And when you find that person who catalyzes your ability to give that gift, that's probably the right person. Now, they may come in a slightly different packaging that you, than you would imagine. They may not look like Chris Hemsworth. They may not look like Brad Pitt, right? But if you, as a result, are happier and flourishing and giving a gift to the world, maybe that's the right guy. And uh, the question that I always ask married women when I speak to them is, how did you meet your husband? And without even asking further questions, the thing that they volunteer is like, you know, I really didn't like him when I first met him. Not, hmm, I found him mildly attractive, but not massively attractive. Not, well, I was neutral. They say I didn't even like him. So I just really want to emphasize to the, to the audience uh, of, of women listening now that this is an exceptional opportunity here because... If, in fact, 
there's a possibility that in that vast array of men whom you didn't initially find all that attractive could be the man who actually is the love of your life, could be the man who fulfills you beyond what you could ever imagine. You're kind of developing a second sight all of a sudden and seeing through the veil and like, oh, wow, that could be a potential great partner, right? And doesn't look like it right now, but women have this extraordinary gift of making a guy who makes him feel good look good and better and better and better. And there's this thing that I call the symbolic shift that happens, which is that initially you and I find something attractive, right? Um, let's say a book cover or, uh, or a person even, right? You say, oh, wow, this person is attractive. And there's certain aspects of that face and body and the proportions that actually hits your brain in a very specific way that evokes pleasure chemicals and then you go, Ooh, okay. But what happens and can happen very quickly is you get used to that. And just the appearance is not the thing that evokes a pleasure anymore. And what happens is the way the person makes you feel is represented symbolically by their appearance. So everybody who's listening to this has probably had the experience of meeting somebody who was tremendously attractive at first, but just instantly turn you off. And then afterwards you just look at me like you, right? So that's possible. And the converse is also possible, meeting somebody who's kind of like, eh, okay looking, but then because of the way he makes you feel later on, you're like, wow. And that's how you have these couples who have been in love for a really long time. And you're like, well, he doesn't look like much, but she's still crazy about him because of the symbolic shift. And everybody is capable of the symbolic shift. Having that, that book cover can now evoke all the feelings you got from reading, say, To Kill a Mockingbird or something, right? And so book cover ain't much itself, but it comes to symbolize all those experiences you've had. So know that this is an interesting feature and very useful uh, feature of the human brain and use it to seek out your fulfillment because that's, that's how you become the happiest, healthiest version of you by finding the, the truth behind uh, the surface appearance. If I may, uh, Ali, mm. uh, uh, mm. add you know, add something on to that because I think it would be very easy to uh, hear hear what you said, and and again, this is the conundrum of the position we find ourselves in. Um, twist it into so you're telling me I got to date someone who's unattractive, <laughs> right? No, right. I, I, yeah. I, I, I know that's not what you said, um, yeah, yeah. and I, I just think it's important that we 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 call attention to that that. He's not saying that you should date someone that you find unattractive, but there are, and you, you probably already have an experience of there's this guy that you got to know that you wouldn't necessarily pick out of a lineup and you ended up falling in love with him. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a very, very common story. The thing is when you're swiping on Tinder, no one's going to say you should go out with a guy that you're not attracted to, right? <laughs> that is not the prerequisite for happiness. I think mm -hmm. Ali's saying in his own way the same thing that I say in, in Love You, which is it's really based on how someone makes you feel. Absolutely. Right? And how someone yeah. treats you, how does someone make you feel? The terms I use are safe, heard, and understood. That is not something that's available to us uh, from uh, a, a, an online dating profile. It's not something that's available to us necessarily on a first date. And people who you're not wildly attracted to, there has to be some modicum of attraction, but people who you're not wildly attracted to can become the love of your life and you become more attracted to them on the one to 10 scale. What I experience as, as a coach who works very hands-on with people is essentially there's a lot of six attraction that turns into eight, nine attraction when people fall in love. Oh, absolutely. And 
I'm so glad you brought that up because yes, that could be misconstrued as in, you know, go with people you find unattractive. That's totally not it. Attraction is not optional. You want to have that, that groin chakra attraction there. Otherwise that's the base of the whole relationship. Otherwise you're dating your brother and that's, and that's not any, anybody's idea of fun. And you want to be somewhat attracted, but the problem with things like Tinder, which turns turns the whole experience of, of human courtship into something like online shopping is that you're swiping through these things so fast that your brain's foraging. Your brain has this in, built in foraging function. And why go for the kind of, you know, medium sized, slightly mangled berry when you know there's going to be 10,000 more huge, big, ripe, fresh berries that you clearly deserve. Right. Except that nobody's telling you on there that if you're picking top berry, then the other 10,000 people are also, and you're probably not going to get it. And in the meantime, you're being deprived of all these perfectly decent berries that are nutritious and nourishing and good for you and a great fit for you and accessible to you. So that's why these apps are doing you a huge disservice. Awesome. Thank you. For too much choice. Too much choice actually makes you miserable. It turns out people are much happier when they have limited choice and when they commit commitment is a thing that makes you happy and Tinder, et cetera, are the opposite of commitment. And I just have to tell the short, short story about uh, Phil Knight's courtship with his wife. Phil uh, Knight of Nike. Now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the best memoirs I've ever read is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I mean, if you know, I'm kind of sad that the guy gave away a life of poverty as a as a writer, which he could have been a very good one to have a $22 billion fortune instead. But hey, these things happen. Uh, but he met his wife as he was teaching an accounting class. And, you know, I'm like, she, he's like, oh my God, who is this super cute girl in the front row making eyes at me all the time? I don't even know what to do. So he finally contrives to have her take a job with his company as an accountant, right? And after three months, he works up the courage to ask her to dinner one Friday night and then another one the next Friday night. And then they start dating. And on Tinder, that's like 1.3 seconds, gone. So uh, courtship used to take time. People used to get to know each other. They used to watch how they behave around other people to get an accurate sense of what kind of person is this like. And, and you know, you just don't have enough time to assess people in a way that used to be when we lived in tribes of 150 people, everybody knew everybody else, and you had a very good sense of who you're dealing with. Yeah, we're an, we're an instant gratification society and um, technology progresses and not always for the better. So, you know, uh, dating apps took an already shallow medium like online dating and made it shallower by re mm. removing profiles and emailing because that takes time. So now it's <laughs> now it's pictures and texting. And so um, I don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, all I think all you can do is sort of recognize the downside to it. It doesn't mean you don't participate in this. You, you may opt not to. I don't I never recommend it. But I do know that for um, a certain swath of people, um, it's their it's their preferred means, and I try not to make them wrong for for playing the the you know video poker that is uh, dating apps. Well, you are nicer and more polite. I'm just going to say it's wrong because it it's rearranging your brain in a way that's not good for you, and you may not realize what it is, but it's turning. I mean, these things are designed like slot machines yeah. and they work exactly the same way in your brain, the whole dopamine reward system. And 
And there are certain things in life which you don't want to be that way, like money, right? So slot machines are bad for you. Everybody knows that because you're wasting money and you'll get that. And this, in a way, is also burning up your social capital and your social brain capital and your empathy capital, all these things that are activated when you meet people face to face and you speak to them and you understand them and you value them. So uh, it's a pernicious thing because it's so hooked into the way the brain works and how novelty just gives you boom that will will boost and, and all the possibility and people think that more choice is great, but I'm telling you. More choice just makes you miserable for two reasons. And there's a whole book written about that. I'll give it to you in a in two minute version. But you don't have to give my, me the book because astute listeners know I got married because of that book. No, there you go. Did you, know, did you know that, Alan? I did not know that. I, I, I read The Paradox of Choice and I was like, I'm a maximizer. <laughs> I, I'm, oh, yeah. I, this, this book is, uh, is identifying my flaws and staring me right mm -hmm. in the face. And I went through that. Uh, I could do better. I could do better. I could be do better if I keep on playing. I want to date. I want to marry someone just like my wife, but five years younger, so we have more time to have two kids. And, oh wow! And, and that was—I was literally faced with that dilemma. She was. She was. Holy awesome. cow! And uh, I, I said, "Well, I could break up with her, but it might take me like three years to find someone that I like as much as her, and I might be right back in the same spot. And she'll be great, but she'll have a different set of problems. And so." I, I, I stuck, right? Like I, I just, I, I held my hand and it was, and, and that's not a romantic story. People think, oh my God, you have to have the, you just know moment. But I was really assessing the pros and cons. And I said, am I going to be the guy who is constantly trying to trade up from 95% to 96% of what I want? Um, and I, I, I chose not to. And it was, it was the best decision I ever made by far. And it was inspired by the paradox of choice by Barry Schwartz. And you can now give a two-minute version of that. <laughs> I'll, I'll make it a one-minute version. That's so too much choice makes you miserable two ways. One, because just choosing becomes more difficult. Like when you go down the cereal aisle and there's like 200 different kinds of cereal, which one do you pick, right? You just wasted half an hour of your life. And the second is once you do decide from those 200 different cereals, you're going to take it home and then you're going to second-guess yourself. It's like, oh, what if the other one was better? So that's basically that's guaranteed misery. So limit choice, commit early. I mean, committing early, satisfying, and look, okay, you know what? To be fair, I will give you the optimization algorithm. This has actually been developed by computer scientists. If you want to participate in the mess of online dating and online dating apps, this is how you do it. So it's the 37% rule. So you decide how much of the space you are going to explore. So this is the, always the explore versus exploit conundrum, right? So you say, okay, I am going to go on... 70 dates, because that's just about as much attention span as any human has. 70 real dates. And and of those, out of that 70, I'm going to pick the best one. So what you do is you determine what 37% of 70 is. So that's around 25, right? So you go on 25 dates and you keep track of the quality of the dates and you maybe assign them some kind of mental score, numerical score or something, right? And then once you get past 25, the first person that's better than everything you've seen, you just commit. You're done. And that way you don't do this eternally. You just do it, you know, for like six months. So so that's it's interesting conceptually. Uh, no one should mm -hmm. do that or will do that, but it's interesting right. conceptually. And what I find uh, validating, since I'm not a doctor nor a scientist, is how well that dovetails with something that I have in my Believe in Love program. Uh, it's called the 30 date challenge. 
And I asked women to evaluate men, I'm kind of just like you said, uh, on three characteristics, uh, comfort, fun, and attraction. And if all of those scores are positive on a first date, the guy gets a second date. If any of those scores are negative, the guy doesn't get a second date because you should never go out out with a guy you're not comfortable with, never go out with a guy you're not attracted to, don't go out with a guy that you don't have fun because like, who who are we kidding? Nobody deserves a second date just for breathing. So (laughs) by, by that token, um, I believe if you go on essentially one date a week for six months, you're going to find a guy you kind of like who kind of likes you and checks off all those boxes. And then, of course, time will tell, you know, a couple years later as to whether you guys have the goods. But in terms of just choosing a boyfriend, um, I think anybody who goes on one date a week for six months regularly pre-screens guys instead of going out with total strangers for coffee should end up with a boyfriend. See, not that hard. I mean, look, I, I present the 37% rule somewhat facetiously. It's like, okay, if you must do this electronic thing, then might as well go about it. You know, it's a computer-based thing. Use the computer scientist algorithm. <laughs> so if you're going to use an algorithm, use a good algorithm that actually makes you happy and gives you results as opposed to a crappy algorithm designed to make Tinder more money. So let's so, let's, let's get out of... Um of uh, the, the, the science brain and let's get into something that's a little more grounded and, and emotional. What are, what do you classify the three stages of relationships? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that I learned actually came from um, this guy who was a, some maybe perhaps controversial, but also very deep teacher. His name is David data. So, uh, and he came up with this idea of the three stages of relationship and um the first is the kind of, oh my God, you complete me. And it's a lot of what the Western romantic ideal is about, and it's totally counterproductive. It is not the thing that allows you your greatest flourishing and happiness. So that's, co- that's codependence. Uh, so once you mature a little bit out of that, you get to the point of, oh, well, I'm okay and you're okay. Let's both be uh, self-sufficiently okay together. So that's the independent stage of relationship, right? But really, if you're just going to be two silos, uh, well, what's the point of that? The whole point of relationship was some kind of mutuality, some kind of complementarity. And that is the phase of mutual flourishing or divine partnership, such that you are catalyzing the growth of your partner, your partner is catalyzing the growth of you, and you're both becoming a bigger, better version, happier version of yourselves as a result of being in a relationship because otherwise really what is the point? So those are the three phases and uh, that those happen so first of all by being cognizant of where you are and what you want because perhaps if you had some kind of attachment pattern and then this uh, when you're growing up as a kid and some guy duplicates that, you just kind of latch onto him and that's what you're capable of doing at that point, right? If it's the wrong kind of partner, so codependence. So you want to know when that's happening and decide, hmm, is that where I want to be? How do I transcend and move to the next phase? So that's a big part of it, just knowing what your tendencies are and where you would rather be. And that way it actually really clears up because the kind of partner that you want to pick because you're like, you, can, you look at the guy, it's like, is this guy really capable of mutual flourishing? And that simplifies the decision process, the selection process. This person, you know, is this guy stuck in codependence? Is this guy just, does this guy just want the independence thing? And, and I think what happens with uh, a lot of couples is that uh, they end up 
modern couples in this whole independent thing. It's like, well, I'm self-sufficient, you are self-sufficient, great. Let's be self-sufficient together. And that's good, that's progress, but it's not the whole story. And you do want to get to the point of, of a little bit of surrender, both parties kind of saying, hey, you know, how can we uh, have this deep intimacy such that we grow up and flourish together? I, I I like it and I agree with it. I I'm uh, I I don't know the terminology, um, but I, I I think I'm I'm happily codependent with my wife uh, after 10, 11 years in a way that I certainly was not when we got engaged or when we got married. Um, uh, at that time, you know, again, the I can't live without you. I could very well live without her when I only knew her for 18 months. Um, 10 years, two kids, a house, and, and all the memories in between, she's completely indispensable to me. I love the mm -hmm. fact that I'm codependent. It's scary how much I love mm -hmm. her and how much I need her. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, this is, it's, it's the most beautiful relationship. It's the ultimate when you can get there. Um, uh, and if people, a lot of people, when they're in their 40s and their 50s and have made mistakes in love, they do. They they, they kind of just want to be boyfriend girlfriend. I'm going to live my life, and you live yours, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to sleep together, and we're going to have companionship. Uh, but they don't want it whole hog uh, because they're afraid of the pain it might cause. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the way of getting to the point that you've gone to is is surrender and a little bit of surrender of, of identity and. And, and joyful surrender. And, and by the way, just so everybody knows, I am by no stretch of the imagination a relationships expert. I write about dating. I know a couple of things about how the science works and how maybe a couple of techniques here and there. But relationships, that's a domain of people like Evan, who've actually had one. Or even better, John Gottman, who has been studying couples in the couples lab for 40 years. So there are relationship experts out there. You should seek them out if you want, uh, if you want some tips on dating, courtship process, attraction that phase that's that's my beat got it so um to to wrap up we, we we've we've covered a lot of ground we've been all over the place and i love the fact that we can kind of go on these tangents together and and follow um most people don't enjoy dating um uh i I am managed to enjoy dating, I think more than most. It's why I'm generally an optimist about it, and I could hold that optimistic space for other people. but I think you did, Evan. I was there. <laughs> but but um, I think there's a certain attachment to each person being, you know, uh, is this guy going to be my future husband? Is this gonna, guy going to be my future husband? And when, when things don't shake out accordingly, there's a disproportionate disappointment. Um, it's why I preach the concept of short-term pessimism and long-term optimism. I wouldn't expect mm -hmm. anything from the next guy, but if you keep going, yeah. eventually there's going to be one. How do you suggest people bring joy back into the dating process, which ideally the, the search for a husband and being courted by men and making out with new guys and the possibility of a, a new future should be fun and exciting. How, how do we make it better? Well, it's funny because this goes back to the whole concept of practical spirituality. And if I were to break down all spirituality, just one thing and one thing only, and a lot of meditation teachers would agree, it's presence. It's being present in the moment and being present to what is happening right now because there's no point, no time in your life when it's not going to be right now. So if you're missing the right now and you're somehow projecting the future of what could be, 
or in the back in the past into, oh no, that happened. I hope it doesn't happen again. You just missed your whole freaking life because your life is only happening in the now. So what I suggest that uh, people bring to dating to make it more fun again is an attitude of let's see what happens. And this may seem like a small shift, but it's actually a complete shifting of your entire world if you do it on a constant basis. If you make this your mantra, let's see what happens. Let's just see what happens, right? Then your entire life becomes one big experiment. And you know what's great about experiments is that experiments never fail. You always get some kind of result. Sometimes it's a so-called positive result. Sometimes it's a so-called negative result, but you always get a result. So be curious about that result because that way it's always going to be novel. It's always going to be exciting. And if you're in having novelty and excitement, I think that's what fun is, right? So um, be curious. Be curious about the person. If you're always curious, you'll learn something about human nature in addition to just that person who's sitting in front of you, right? Uh so curiosity, being present in the moment, and the let's see what happens attitude, that makes the whole thing fun. And also means being open to novelty. Some guy says, hey, let's go hike up the Hollywood sign and sneak over on top of it and take some crazy photos. Sure, why not? Somebody says, hey, let's go try some cuisine never tried before. Sure, why not? And also engineer that in your own life. Just be willing to try new things uh, because the more you do that, the more you're going to be open to the new experience of a person in your life as well. Um, I'm always tempted to add more, but I think that is a perfect place for us to end today, my friend. Um, thank you for uh, for sharing this with us. Um, I couldn't recommend Allie's book anymore. Um, Allie, I, I, I'm going to link to this uh, on, on my blog, um, uh, and I'm going to give the directions you gave to me. Go to the thedowofdating.com. That's T A O of dating.com. Put in your email address to get a free 45-minute audio with highlights from his book. And if you later get his Project Irresistible course, you could save $100 by typing in coupon code UNICORN. Um, is there anything else you want to share with our, our uh, strong, smart, strong, successful women uh, before you take off today? I think we covered a lot. And just be the light uh, because people think that, oh, love is some something out there. But when you are your most radiant self, when you are making other people feel like a million bucks, when you're, when you're raising them up and putting a smile on the world, you're generating your own love. You don't need anybody else to do that for you. And funny thing, side effect, people will start to show up because people want to be around that positive energy, that, that elevation, that love. So be the light and everything else will take care of you. I feel like that's the secret. <laughs> no, literally, that's the secret. <laughs> oh, okay then. <laughs> the Rhonda Byrne law of attraction. Um, I don't believe that. I don't, no, I, don't, no. I, don't, I don't. I don't believe that the universe and its vibrations are listening to us. But I do believe that if you are a happy, positive person, people will want to be friends with you. People will want to date you. People will want to hire you. There's no downside to being the person that Ali just described. That's what I meant, Evan. So yes. We agree, as always. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you to uh, all of our listeners for joining me here on the Love You podcast. My name is Evan Mark Katz. Next week, I'm interviewing Eli Finkel, the Northwestern professor who wrote perhaps my favorite relationship book of the last year, The All or Nothing Marriage. Allie, have you read it yet? No. Total, Sounds interesting. Totally worth your time. Right up 
right. yeah, right, right in your wheelhouse. So the all or nothing marriage by Eli Finkel. I'm be interviewing him next week. Um, it's great stuff. You don't want to miss it. So please subscribe to the Love You podcast on iTunes using the link in my email or the one on the blog. If you're already a Love You podcast subscriber and you want to take bold action in making this year the last year you're ever single, please go to www.evanmarkkatz, get your free personal relationship analysis that will identify your your number one relationship challenge and tell you exactly how to address it for free. See you again next week on the Love You Podcast. Mm-hmm.